Yeah, this is the first episode we have to acknowledge the bump music. The bump music's free, and uh, we're just, uh, we're in beta. Pretty cool. Welcome into Fundraise Now. I'm Alex Simon. This is episode three. My next guest is Ashley Budd, digital strategist and designer at Higher Ed Live and the director of digital marketing at Cornell University, where she has spent the last six years. Ashley is a thought leader in online fundraising and digital strategy in and outside higher education. She talks about the rebirth of your website as the North Star for truth in the post-truth world. She also talks about telling development offices to not be afraid to have donors designate their gift as a way to get them on the donor rolls. And she talks about social media as a platform and a place to tell stories rather than just a place to distribute information. Of digital media begins. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, well, I attended Rochester Institute of Technology as an undergrad. Right. And actually went there for an art degree. I was a painting major. <laughs> But I found myself surrounded by technology and people who were studying all sorts of cutting edge technologies. So I was really engrossed in a lot of what was new for my undergraduate years. And after I graduated college, I was not ready to be a starving artist. So I right. took a position in the admissions office at RIT which uh-huh. just happened to be the right place at the right time um, where mm-hmm. a lot of exciting digital things were happening uh, around 2007 was the time that Facebook was opening its doors to the public. And we started thinking about how we could use email and social media to reach out to prospective students. So that's where things started rolling. And your 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 first love of the art and utilizing that <laughs> um, you know kind of create creative side and messaging out to to students who were um, you know 17 18 19 years old looking to to find a a college to go to and a big investment. Um, well, yeah, I, I guess that able to the way that I was approaching the work was um, looking at what had worked for so long traditionally mm-hmm. and at the time in enrollment um, the student led campus tours were like the highest converter of um, student enrollment you know that was one of the big decision makers if you could get someone onto campus and get you know, that face-to-face interaction with a counselor or with a uh, another current student that was really important in the cycle. So what I tried to do was scale that as the institute was trying to bring in students from farther away. Um, mm-hmm. It had 
been a, you know, pretty much like a regional university, um, and they were trying to go more national and international. So we were using digital to try to scale that experience. And so we started putting our tour guides on YouTube um, and started doing live chats with them and started using all of these new digital tools to help us simulate that same experience that a student would get if they were physically on campus. And you could start to see that in some tangible results as far as the admissions side goes, as far as the international students and the quality yeah. that you were getting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I try to use that same strategy now when I'm thinking about what really has always worked for our businesses uh, in the traditional sense and what new tools are available that would help us scale that really personal, um, when you think about fundraising, it's that highly personal um, mm-hmm. major gift officer to major donor relationship that's built over the course of years, you know, like what's the secret sauce in that relationship and is there any way mm-hmm. that we can scale that for a larger broad-based audience using digital tools? So how do you personalize that? How do you personalize relationships? Because I think there's still a lot of, you know, nonprofits out there and and organizations out there that look at, like, social media as just a way to, like, distribute, like, content of, like, what's going on here and just, you know, you you almost want to kind of – it's like something that you want to check off the box rather than, like, really create kind of a personal message to a targeted audience. So what are some Yeah, personalization is really hard. Um, it's hard to it, it's hard to create a personal experience no matter what it's gonna you know it's gonna take some work so I think um, people that use online tools for communication can kind of see right through what is personal and what's not um, just putting my name in a subject line of an email doesn't make me think that someone actually wrote that <laughs> to me personally. Right. I know that there's technology that just inserts my name from a database. Um, and that's the same that you get in other forms of communication, too. Like, I know when I'm getting that robocall on my cell phone, or I know when a letter shows up in my mailbox that's got handwriting, uh, you know, printed handwriting on there as opposed to actual physical handwriting. So, you know, people can see right through a lot of those kind of gimmicky personalizations. Mm-hmm. I think when I'm trying to make something personal at scale, I'm really thinking about the messaging that's going to resonate with my whole audience and not turn others away. So trying to be really inclusive in the mm-hmm. messaging, um, not thinking about just a niche part of my audience. Um, and just always trying to strike a really friendly tone um, rather mm. than an institutional tone or an academic tone that we get so often in higher education. Um, when you use language that is as close to the same language that, that you use when you speak, it comes mm-hmm. across as a more conversational and therefore personal tone Um when when you're online and that can be a real conflict for people who have worked in communication for a long time as writers uh, because 
the craft of writing um, is different than speaking, public speaking. And I think um, the way we started using our digital devices, um, you know, mobile devices are very much linked to speaking. Um, I'm speaking mm-hmm. to you on my phone. That serves mainly right. as a computer. <laughs> um, we're starting to speak to devices more and more. And so we're really blurring that line between what where you would sit down and read something um and a two way conversation that you're that you're gonna have over a digital device. So uh I think a great way to kind of scale personalization is to start with your language and trying to strike that more conversational tone in all of your writing. I was reading on your website and I know you you've you've got a few different things that you I know you work at Cornell and, and higher ed live as well as you, you have like do some personal work as as a consultant. Uh, but you said, I design online experiences inspired by the real world. That's kind of what yeah. you were talking about a little bit. But Yeah, exactly. Um, can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm approaching a new challenge, I really do try to ground myself in what is happening offline um, before I go online. Uh-huh. So if I'm working with – if I'm working with – a new client, um, I'm really trying to understand what they do best. Uh, they're usually coming mm-hmm. to me because they have a, <laughs> they're having trouble with something that they can't do very well or, you know, they're tackling something mm-hmm. that's foreign or new to them. And, um, so trying to understand what does work, um, and what works for something, someone in the real world, um, usually will work for them online too it's just being able to then use a kind of translation you know the language the digital language that i have um and the knowledge base of the tool sets that you know i have in my toolkit to say you know what you're doing here we can do online and we can you know serve thousands of people rather than just the individuals on an individual basis um so yeah that's really what i'm talking about is you know, being inspired by the good work that people are doing face to face. So how do you how do you push back against you know some uh, maybe senior level management that folks and they're talking like why are you waste why are we wasting our time with you know social media and digital media when you know the base of who we who gives is really still baby boomers and older and they're not necessarily online so. How did, what are some ways and tactics like you just continue to be persistent uh, with senior management when they when they rebut against you? Yeah, I think um, you know I know that that is not true <laughs> that statement that you uh-huh. made. And if um, you're someone who's advocating right. for the use of social media, you probably you probably know that there is value there. Um, some of the best mm-hmm. ways that I've been able to break through um, to senior leadership who might not understand the value is through ad- mm-hmm. anecdotal, um, you know, small successes mm. um, and showing, you know, one or two donors that th- I know they really respect or would put in that category of this person right. would never interact with us here. 
and showing them, you know, an active Twitter account or showing them the information that someone is posting about themselves on LinkedIn um, and making a connection with that person on LinkedIn. Um, one anecdotal story that I tell um, is about, um, you know, someone who caught our eye on the digital team um, because she had moved into a C-level position at a huge organization. We kind of saw it over in the newswire. This alumnus mm -hmm. is now the CMO of a big Fortune 500 um, company, the first female to be in the role. And we said, like, wow, this is great. What's going on with her? Um, you know, it, are we already trying to – are we are, already tracking her? Is she in a prospects pool of ours? And so in the database, we could see that she did have a gift officer assigned to her. Um, and in our workflow, um, we won't reach out and, you know, say any, we won't do any even kind of congratulations mm -hmm. over social until we touch base with that gift officer to make sure we're not messing up any surprise <laughs> um, thank you or something that we didn't know was happening. Um, so in this case, we touch base with the gift officer. The gift officer says, oh, yeah, we know um, that mm -hmm. person does not communicate with us. You know, Cornell is not on their radar. We've, you know, tried emailing and calling them for years and just like radio silence. So do whatever you mm -hmm. want to do on the social media thing that you do. <laughs> and so, you know, we sent a quick congratulatory tweet connected with her on LinkedIn. She connected back with us within 20 minutes. Um, and so for years, you know, this radio silence has now been broken over a few connections over social media. And over the course of the next couple of months, you know, we started to follow her a little closer, saw that she got a new dog. We were giving some name mm -hmm. suggestions, Cornell name suggestions for the puppy. Um, just kind of started this nice back and forth um, banter. Um, found out that she was, you know, didn't fact have a daughter who was interested in attending and was heading back to campus um, to wow. do a campus visit. Um, and over the course of, you know, you know, opened the relationship back up with the gift officer. And over the course of six months, we were able to bring her to campus as a speaker for the Cornell uh, Women's Council and mm -hmm. uh, ended up getting a $75,000 commitment from her um, wow. within a year. So uh, those anecdotal stories and really what it was, yeah. you know, this is a busy CMO, uh, it's marketing, you know, in the marketing sector, too busy to pick up the phone call. You're getting screened. Email is a nightmare <laughs> and you know you weren't mm -hmm. cutting through the noise in email but a little bit of ego stroking on twitter in a public space right and that you know personal connection made through linkedin which is so easy to do opened up the dialogue so we met her where she was and once we were able to you know remind her hey here we are, we're here to help. How can we help you with this campus visit? Do you want to be more connected to the university? 
um, everything, you know, broke open there. So it's those kinds of stories that we've been telling for years now that go a really long way in helping you make the case to senior leadership that, you know, a little bit of investment in a different communication tool um, might be the right communication tool for a major donor. One of the things you and Cornell do so well is crowdfunding, and I know you're uh, part of an integral team that 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 does that takes on crowdfunding and, and yeah. days of giving that have been, I mean, now, uh, I mean, almost a staple in every development office. Yes. So talk to me just about some tips to make those days successful, and I know it's a lot. I know a lot goes into it, um, but just some tips. Two to, two, two to five tips that make it uh, successful for Um Yeah, crowdfunding and giving days follow some yeah. similar, you know, there are some similar strategies. Um, I'll start with a giving day uh, because I think that's something that a lot of organizations can pull together um, probably more effectively than something like, crowdfunding that requires you yeah. to have a third-party platform to, mm-hmm. you know, there are some specific bells and whistles that crowdfunding requires. Um, mm-hmm. But um, a, a couple of things about either is um, with any kind of online digital fundraising event, you want to keep the marketing timeline really tight. So if you're going to have a day of giving or if you're going to launch a month-long crowdfunding project, this is not something that you announce months in advance. Um, hold that date of that giving day really close to you until two weeks before it happens. And you want to do that for a couple of reasons. One reason is you don't want to mess with the regular giving habits of your loyal donors. Right. You don't want them to be holding out on making a gift to save it for giving day. Um, okay. And you also want to think about users' digital habits. When you're planning to meet up with friends, you get a Facebook event invite or something pops up in, in your email. Um, unless it's something that you need to travel to, if it's an online experience, getting anything more than two weeks in advance, you're just going to look at it and totally forget because um, you don't need to plan any travel for a giving day. Um, you really just need to mark your calendar um, two weeks advance right. notice is plenty. So hold that, okay. save the date um, really close, and then use that two-week yeah. window before your event to create a lot of excitement and hype because mm-hmm. you, in two weeks you can do some fun things without annoying people or you know just right. uh, hammering at home too much. The two-week window has just been perfect for us. So we typically do a a save the date. Um, we open giving up uh, in advance for VIPs. Um, so if you have a donor base that contributes loyally or year round or in big dollars, you know, they might see this as an additional ask that's annoying. <laughs> um, so what we'll right. do with our real loyal donors is open up a VIP. Um, website for them to make their gift early and we frame it in a way that um, you know 
they're going to be the ones to spark the momentum for the day, to inspire others to give. Their gifts will show up first thing when it launches um, and get others excited. So we're not starting with zero dollars. We're starting with these other gifts. Um, And and it also gives them the opportunity to opt out. You know, if giving day is not the way that they want to participate, fine. Opt out now. Thank you for everything you do. We won't send you emails about this for the next two weeks. So it's a really nice courtesy, a twofold courtesy. Either get out if you're not interested and we won't bug you, or if you want to, you know, show your leadership, make your gift early and um, help us, you know, start the excitement on that day. So those are two things that have worked really well for us, Um, you know, creating the buzz over a two-week time period before the event happens. Yep, and then allowing VIPs to take the day whichever direction they want to. So, like, three, four years ago, giving days and and, uh, crowdfunding was was kind of all the rage. It was, was, um, and now it's become, like, a staple. What are some things that you see, like, what's next in in terms of digital uh, marketing and, and digital fundraising? And I'm also curious about, like, if you, what you're seeing, like, in the next generation as the millennials are kind of being phased out um, in terms of at least the young alumni status. And now mm-hmm. we're getting more into involved with Gen Z. Okay. Um, so I was just. Uh, what what are your thoughts on what's next? Yeah, a couple things looking forward. Um, I think a reinvestment in our websites is still really important. Um, okay. Your website is going to be your home base, your source of truth in a world where truth is bendable. <laughs> on social media um, and when things can change really quickly. Um, I think we've been depending a lot on email in philanthropy. And um, once an email is sent, you can't change the contents of that. So um, maintaining a lot of your information on your own website where you can keep things up to date is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and starting to um, train our donors to go to our websites as a source of, um, you know, helpful information, inspiring stories, places where they can make their gifts um, and feel really good about making those transactions there. Um, I think a lot of us still have a lot of work to do to make that experience better. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're investing more, more time in our websites, um, also investing mm-hmm. more time in our email communication. Um, there's some really interesting uh, things happening with artificial intelligence in our databases yeah. and what we can do with email um, to help um, help make email more personal when you're dealing with um, really large constituencies like we have. Um, what kind of cues can we get sent to us out of the database, what kind of push notifications can we get out of the database to remind us to send a follow-up email to someone, um, that can be really helpful for gift officers that are managing large portfolios. Um, so thinking about transactional email and how you do transactional email and not make it feel 
like a transaction, make it feel more personal. Um, we're thinking a lot about that. Um, as far as the uh, audiences go, I think the millennial generation is really a great one because I am part of it. Um, right. <laughs> it, you know, it's a generation that is very giving, but, um, you know, is also very skeptical, um, questions all sorts of in- institutions. Um, and so we really have to do a good job making the case for our own organizations to why why they should give there. Um, I don't think making the case to why give to this group is is going to be a hard case. It's why give to the specific organization. So, you know, more work in um, connecting the dots between what's happening in their lives and how that relates to your own individual organization uh, is going to go a long way. And so an investment in storytelling that's going to help make those connections, I think will be well worth it. Um, and I, and I think the trend will stay the same with this next generation. Um, and what's worked for millennials, um, that we've seen so far is not being afraid to offer restricted giving as an entry point, um, into being a loyal donor to the organization. Um, I think when we started with crowdfunding, um, one of the things we were really concerned about was um, this pathway of very restricted giving, and um, mm. our institution relies on unrestricted gifts um, so that we can mm-hmm. be flexible with our budgets. And if we're acquiring people through crowdfunding and giving days and to letting them give to very mm-hmm. specific funds, um, how then can we ensure that we're going to have the unrestricted funds in the future that we need. Um, but it, that's just a challenge you have to work through and a, a plan that you have to have in place. Um, the crowdfunding and giving days are great acquisition tools, um, but you have to have a retention plan for that audience that does move them from a very restricted gift, maybe, you know, just giving to their swim team <laughs> um, that they were um you know, had this affinity to, to making the case and doing that cultivation work to say, you know, thank you for supporting the swim team. Maybe the next gift is to the Campus Life Annual Fund and how, you know, and how uh, that bridge, you know, makes sense for them, um, for that kind of a donor and helping them move, you know, towards the path of just giving restricted funds to the university. So why is storytelling? I think it's going to be so more important. of that, more of that. What was that? Well, why, why is, is story Yeah, why is storytelling so important? Yeah, you know, so in, I mean, I think back yeah. to what what a major gift officer is so good at and you know, yeah. They're they're cultivating a relationship over many years and what they're doing is just they're doing a lot of listening to the donor and then they're doing a lot of pitching back to the donor about what's happening on campus. So it's a lot of stories that are shared back and forth over time that make you feel like you're closer and make you feel like you're connected. And when you're telling those stories back and forth, you're noting, you know, oh, yes, you know, when you were on campus, this made sense. And this is what we're doing now that relates back to you and what's happening in your life. And so it's really in that 
like cultivation window if you think about the traditional fundraising arc that storytelling is so important um, in making it feel personal. When we skip that, it feels much yeah. more like a transaction that you make online, you know, you're just like a shopping cart that you're checking out at. Mm-hmm. And when it feels when it's a transaction like that, it really doesn't give you that same feel good sense that you get with philanthropy that you should get with philanthropy that you're really giving and that it um it connects you on a more human level. So if you kind of skip the cultivation phase, um, I don't know that you're going to be able to retain that donor in the same way. Why do you think philanthropy and fundraising is, has to be so personal? You know, what, what is it about it that makes it maybe more personal than just even like a, if you were to go into a car dealer, you know, because you don't need to give your money away. (laughs) Right. 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 You know, you need a car. You don't need to be charitable. Right. Um, it's um, you, you probably you might need to give your family a gift, but you're not right. obligated. Um, and I think there was a generation that did feel that obligation. Um, right. You know, the post-World War Two generation who were given the GI Bill and did feel like they had an obligation to give back to their alma mater, those days are gone. You know, the obligation does not exist with these new generations. So it has to be, you know, it has to be a two-way feel-good experience where the donor really does feel like they're going to make a difference, that they're going to change something. with even their small gift that that's going to change something on the campus that they can point to. Um, so, it, yeah, it, transaction just does not fly with philanthropy ever. <laughs> Very good. Do you think, uh, let me ask you this question. Do you think, like, Bitcoin and digital currencies are going to be, like, more prevalent? Or, I mean, do you guys, do you guys are a huge university. I don't know if you, yeah. you have... If you, do you have the capability to take uh, donations through some of these uh, cryptocurrencies and things like that? Capability, yes. Are we accepting? No. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, I think if a major donor came to us with a huge wallet <laughs> and said, right. can I unload this, we would figure out how to do that. Um, but that scenario hasn't um, played out yet. Not something I'm you're not actively sure. advertising. No, no, I'm not sure it's where we would invest. Um, I think we're still more interested in how people are. I think more popular exchange now is kind of the the Apple Pay, the Venmo kind of quick um, digital right. transaction. Um, so making sure we're you know we're keeping up to speed with something that's more popular. I think. You know, cryptocurrencies right. are still way too niche. Um, yeah. But we, you know, we've been thinking a lot about digital identities. Um, I think part of what makes cryptocurrency so interesting is the technology that is built on the blockchain technology. And right. um, we get really excited about what's happening in Estonia. If anyone wants to go geek out on blockchain, check out 
right. what is happening in Estonia and how they're using individual digital identities, how people are kind of owning their own data. And, and all of that kind of stuff is just trying to – I saw something. You can keep, become a citizen of Estonia. Is that – You can. Right? Is yeah, you saying? can be an East citizen. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. There's a, a really great article in The New Yorker about it if you have – 45 minutes of your life. <laughs> Maybe you want to sit down with a New Yorker article and read about what's happening over there. Um, but um, yeah, I think just trying to keep up with what digital behaviors are um, and trying to make sense of that, make sure we're not falling behind. Um, and uh, digital identity, I think will be part of that in the future. You know, our institution right now, we have every student gets a university ID where they log into all the systems. They can keep that as an alumnus. Um, but mm -hmm. when you leave the institution, you know, you're, you might be using Google to sign into more things. You forget about our ID. So, you know, is there a more universal identification key that we're going to have to think about what would that unlock. Um, those kind of nerdy things are on our mind. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for for coming on. I appreciate it. And where? Let me ask you this question: Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at ashleybud.com. Uh, you cannot find me on Twitter these days. I'm taking a break from Twitter. Um, so head over to my website, drop me a note, say hello. Um, you can subscribe to my newsletter there. Uh, you can still find me on LinkedIn. And that's it. So what are you waiting for? Start building a digital strategy and, uh, you know, become a citizen of Estonia. Why not? It's free. I thank you for your time. Big thanks to my guest, Ashley Budd. Enjoy some bump music. Thanks. <laughs>